Welcome to Michigan Crime Stories. I'm Jessica Shepard. Since MLive reporter Gus Burns brought you the story of Brianna Sharp last fall, he's been working on a topic that has gotten significantly more attention from people here in Michigan and across the country. You've likely heard of the man dubbed Michigan's cannibal killer. Or perhaps you remember the story because of the name of his victim, Kevin Bacon. While the details made for an attention-grabbing sound clip, there were real people and real problems surrounding this story. Gus has worked to bring you an in-depth, more complete picture of what happened in a Shiawassee County basement on Christmas Eve 2019, what led to that tragic night, and what the people closest to those involved have experienced since. Before we get to part one of this four-part series, I want to give you a serious warning. There is graphic, disturbing content included here. The decision to listen should not be taken lightly, and sensitive audiences should avoid this content. For those who feel prepared, here's part one. Justice was served for the Bacon family, that this was a premeditated, cold, calculated killing. I believe the judge was right when he convicted him of first-degree premeditated murder and sentenced him to life in prison. The case of Mark Latunsky, dubbed by the media as the cannibal killer, fell into the lap of Scott Kerner after he was appointed to fill in for his retiring predecessor at the Shiawassee County Prosecutor's Office in March of 2020. Just a few months later, on October 23, 2020, the rookie lead prosecutor walked into the 1851 built courthouse topped with a clock tower and adorned with Bedford limestone in the rural Michigan town of Corona to give his opening statement at the preliminary examination hearing for Mark Latunsky. Today we intend to show through evidence the defendant Mark Latunsky lured, murdered, and then ate the victim's testicles, Kerner said. Latunsky built the custom killing room and he waited for the right victim to come to his trap. On December 24, 2019, Kevin Bacon thought he was going to have a fun evening of casual sex with an experienced older man. At the defendant's direction, Kevin left behind his car, clothes, cell phone, and went with the defendant to his residence at 703 West Terrell Road. They had sex and the defendant murdered Kevin Bacon. The defendant stabbed the victim's neck. When that wasn't enough, he slashed his throat. He then trestled the victim up in this custom killing room. He let the blood drain, dripping through the trap door in the bottom of the floor. Then Latunsky cut the victim's testicles off cooked them in a frying pan, and ate them, then casually went to Christmas dinner. The gory truth of this story is unavoidable, but this podcast aims to also look deeper into the issues that led to a scenario in which something like this could happen in the first place. This is a story about the potential dangers of internet hookups, long-term untreated mental illness, and a system that doesn't yet know how to efficiently integrate criminal justice and mental health treatment, and how those ingredients led two men to meet in a rural Michigan town resulting in unimaginable acts that have captured the morbid curiosity of the nation. Sherwatts County 911. I want to get away from some creepy guy. He had me tied up in his basement. I'm sorry, what's that? I'm trying to escape from some guy who had me chained up in his basement. You had you chained in his basement? Where are you calling from? I don't know. I was supposed to meet a man at the bus station. I met this guy. I'm by. He was cute. He hit on me. I know. We went out to the car. We dropped. Uh, we went to the store. had a soda. I woke up in the basement. Okay. He obviously drugged me. 
Okay, when I get a trooper close to you, I'm going to need you to put that butcher knife down, though. I'm, I'm, I'm flagging down whoever this is. So if this is the maniac, you're going to hear some crazy shit. I don't know. I think this is a cop because that looks like an extra bright light, so I am now putting this down. Okay. I am unarmed. It is on the guardrail. Okay, thank you. It's over here. He sees you. He sees you. Okay. I just want him to know I'm not armed. He knows. I'm not armed. He knows. Yes, sir, I am. I'm not armed. I'm just really happy to see you. Those are portions of 911 calls made by two terrified men who escaped a brick farmhouse on Tyrell Road in rural central Michigan in 2019. The first man, identified in police reports as James Carlson, came from New York. The second, identified only as Adam, his last name is redacted, told police he met his attacker while working at a Walmart in Lansing. Both clearly feared for their lives immediately following an encounter with an odd, kilt-wearing man they say attempted to restrain them against their will in his basement. Carlson, on October 10, 2019, told police he grabbed a knife and cut a leather strap that bound his ankle. He escaped into the dark night at 2.30 a.m., surrounded by farm fields. Across the street from the well-kept but desolate house Carlson escaped from was Howard Cemetery, a roadside plot where some of the suspected attackers' relatives have headstones. The victim turned left and ran with a knife in his hand. He didn't know where he was. Once police located and rescued him, Carlson told officers he met the man at a bus station in Flint, located about 30 miles to the east. Carlson, who described himself to police as, quote, bisexual and a freak, unquote, hoped to have sex with the man and spend the night, according to the police report. Carlson said shortly after entering the man's vehicle at the bus station, he fell asleep. The report says, quote, the next thing he remembered was waking up with a leather strap tied around his ankle, which was attached to a chain. Carlson described this location as a basement with a small kitchen within arm's reach. Carlson stated he entered a state of panic and grabbed a nearby kitchen knife to cut himself free, unquote. Outside and safely down the road, Carlson called 911. The report said throughout the interview, Carlson repeatedly refused medical attention and could not provide any further description of the man, his vehicle, or the home he was held in. Carlson explained after taking a moment to think about the situation, he believed this was a form of sexual foreplay and not a case of false imprisonment, the report said. Carlson continued to refuse to provide any further information and explained he just wanted a ride to the gas station. Police said that due to his lack of cooperation, no further investigation would be pursued. Police put this strange incident behind them, or so they thought, until November 25, 2019, when police were dispatched to another similar 911 call in the area. This time, a young man who's named Adam in the police report had escaped a home on Tyrell Road in Chiawassee County's Bennington Township. He ran to a neighbor's house. It was 5 p.m. He had no idea where he was. A police officer wrote in his report, quote, The caller had run to 910 West Tyrell and was waiting for me. Upon arrival, a young man came out to meet me wearing only a leather kilt with green, red, and blue hair. I noticed his fingernails were painted blue and his toenails painted red. The young man was out of breath and told me he had been chased to this location by a man that chained him up, unquote. Adam told police he rode with a man to his home to help him move some tile. While he may have helped move the tile, the police report says investigators later learned Adam came to the man's home for sex. Police were able to locate the house and identify the suspect. 
The report said, quote, it was learned that the other person was Mark Latunsky, and this was not the first time the two have had a sexual encounter together, unquote. Police went to Latunsky's house and described him as answering the door in, quote, a black leather kilt with suspenders, no shirt, pants, or shoes. The suspender portion had two small rings exposing Latunsky's nipples, unquote. Adam told police, according to their report, that he believed he was only helping a friend until Latunsky chained him up in a secluded part of the basement and told Adam he was not going to allow him to leave. Police said Adam was not clear or forthcoming about how he came to be wearing the kilt owned by Latunsky. Adam asked Latunsky if he could use the bathroom, and when he was freed from his restraints to do so, Adam said he took off. Latunsky told police he wanted his $300 kilt back. Police returned Adam's clothes, and Latunsky was returned his leather kilt. Adam at that point told police Mark didn't do anything to him, and he didn't want to pursue charges, according to the police report. The report said, quote, Adam told me he just got a little nervous, freaked out and panicked. Adam told me he just wanted to go home, unquote. Police then linked Latunsky to the prior incident involving Carlson. Twice in less than two months, men fled from Latunsky's home and called 911. But no criminal action was ever taken, no mental evaluations conducted, and no in-depth investigation into Latunsky or what was going on in his basement. Months later, police would re-interview both men. Here's Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant James Moore. After the murder, um, the man in New York, he did admit to the detective that he wasn't forthcoming with police when he had called 911 the first time. Uh, he definitely said that he was not um, he was not held against his will. He was at Mark's house voluntarily, and basically he was embarrassed. Uh, most people don't want their personal lives exposed, and that's what went through both men's minds. State police did arrest Latunsky at his home on December 10th for overdue child support payments. It was listed that he owed $6,514 at the time, according to the police report I'm live obtained. Latunsky was lodged in the Shiawassee County Jail, but it's not clear from the records I'm live reviewed how long he stayed there. Latunsky otherwise remained free to pursue his increasingly violent fantasies that included discussions of cannibalism based on chat logs later presented in trial and working on his apparent kill room in his basement, a setup one might use to drain a freshly slain deer before butchering it. It's not clear if Latunsky ever used his setup for animals, but it's in this basement a month from the second escape call on Christmas Eve 2019 when Latunsky made clear that this was no longer some sexual fantasy. He killed a man and intended to eat him. Kevin Richard Bacon was born to parents Pamela Van Horn and Carl Bacon on November 28, 1994. Coincidentally, the same day notorious serial killer and cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer was beaten to death, by an inmate inside Columbia Correctional Facility in Portage, Wisconsin. Kevin had an older sister, Jennifer Bacon, who wrote these words read in court on December 15, 2022. Kevin meant the world to me, and I will never have another brother like him. <clears throat> the day I learned of Kevin's death, a part of me died with him because he was my first best friend, brother, and protector. Kevin was my protector from cruel people who didn't understand me like he did because of a disability that I was born with. No one will ever replace Kevin in my life because he was mom of kind and will always be missed. 
Even though Kevin is gone, he is now my forever guardian angel, and I will always cherish our memories together. Martha Chesley is the person responsible for Kevin's untimely death, but I failed to protect Kevin as his older sister because it was my job as his sister to protect him. There are things that Mark can't ever take away from me, such as a love for cats and dogs, 25 years of pictures and memories, love for The Sims video games, love for a variety of music, love for coach purses, and Harry Potter, because I shared his town interest with Kevin. Kevin graduated Swartz Creek High School with about 275 other students in 2013. Swartz Creek is a small Flint suburb of about 6,000 residents, named after a tributary that runs through the community on its way to the Flint River. Swartz Creek is about nine miles west of Flint, just a few miles west of Bishop International Airport, along Interstate 69 in central Michigan. The community doesn't have a lot of claims to fame, other than possibly its Tesla charging station, the only one within about 40 miles. It's mostly strip mall-style commerce and pretty nice family homes. Swartz Creek is nearly 92% white, with a median income that nearly doubles the state average, according to U.S. Census data. Kevin, like many 20-somethings, was still figuring things out. Where he wanted to live, what he wanted to do for a living, relationships, and to compound the stresses that come with all that, he was a gay man in Michigan, a place where social issues like LGBTQ rights aren't always supported. As an example, after Michigan Supreme Court in 2022 ruled that state anti-discrimination laws included discrimination based on sexual orientation, three conservative groups filed lawsuits, claiming they have the constitutional right to discriminate based on sexual orientation, since it's part of their protected religious beliefs. Kevin wanted more than Swartz Creek, Michigan had to offer. You come here and there's just so much that's like really outdated. It just felt like we were missing out, Bacon's roommate and friend, Michelle Myers, told Rolling Stone reporter Joseph Jafari, for an April 2021 story. Kevin's friends told Rolling Stone he hoped to move to Chicago, where there is a more vibrant gay scene. Friends said Kevin sometimes bragged about his sexual escapades and used sex as a distraction from other problems in his life, including body image issues, a lack of money, and bouts of depression that landed him in psychiatric treatment facilities. Kevin was a six foot two, 320 pound man, according to police reports. A widely publicized photo provided to media by Kevin's parents display Kevin with purple hair and a receding hairline. Vanessa Woodley, a longtime friend who MLive was unable to reach for comment, told Rolling Stone she drove Kevin to psychiatric hospitals twice in the fall of 2019, including the final time in November 2019, when friend Michelle Myers said he'd cut his arms numerous times amid a depressive state. MLive made several attempts to reach Myers for comment, she did not respond. A police report reviewed by MLive said that Myers told police Kevin had been suicidal and tried to kill himself once by taking pills with alcohol. Kevin's mother told police her son was released from a hospital on December 2nd following an attempt to take his own life. Despite his depression, Kevin had plans. He earned his cosmetology license from Sharps Hair Academy in Grand Blanc, a suburb of Flint, following his high school graduation, and worked in the beauty industry for years. He started a Facebook page named Hair by Kevin in June of 2017 to showcase his work. You can tell he liked working with a lot of color, highlights, and cuts, but he also offered blowouts, smoothing treatments, and eyebrow services, sometimes working in salons, other times freelance. 
The beauty industry is a personal one, and success is often based just as heavily on relationships as skill. When a hairdresser moves salons, a lot of times, so do their customers. Excited to announce that I will now be working at Uniquely You Salon and Spa in Swartz Creek. Message me for appointments, Kevin wrote with an exclamation point on his Facebook page on December 17th, 2019. Kevin didn't get a chance to work at that salon very long. These words were sent to MLive via text by Andrew Payne, who hired Kevin at Uniquely You Salon and Spa. From the small amount of time we spent together, you could feel how deep and empathetic he was. He was very candid about his battles with depression, and we connected over our shared issues with depression and anxiety. He was truly kind. Kevin had also enrolled at University of Michigan Flint with plans to pursue a degree in psychology. This is Kevin's dad, Carl Bacon. Kevin was turning, turning his life around. He, was, he, was, he made plans. He had, he, had, he had some future plans. He was planning on going back to school in January. Uh, he had just started a, a new job. And so things were starting to look up for him. Uh, and uh, in the situation that put, that put him in the hospital in November, he, that, he put that behind him. Please, um, do, not, do not destroy his reputation. He, he, uh, he obviously got into something that he wasn't prepared. He wasn't for. prepared for, and we we, we, were, we all make mistakes. Yeah, we all make mistakes. On December twenty third, two thousand nineteen, Kevin made a fateful decision to pursue casual sex using a phone app named Grinder, which touts itself as the number one free dating app serving the LGBTQ community. The chat conversation that follows was referenced in court hearings and provided to MLive through a Freedom of Information Act request. Hey, Kevin wrote at 1.28 p.m. on December 23, 2019, to a profile using the name Olikos, a pseudonym for Mark Latunsky. The conversation began casual. Latunsky said he wasn't up to much, just enjoying the day, getting ready for the holidays. Nice, Kevin responds. Then he gets to the point. Looking for any fun? Always, Latunsky said. Kevin asks if Latunsky can host whatever rendezvous they settle on, and the conversation turns to sex. Latunsky indicates he likes to be in control during sex. What is your fantasy? Latunsky asks. I like to expand on the things that you think about and make them real. Kevin responds that he's interested in being with multiple men at once. He wants to get tied up, have a complete loss of control. I can make that happen, Latunsky tells Kevin. Kevin says he's interested in having what he calls anonymous sex with multiple men. That would take some organizing, but Latunsky tells Kevin he can make that happen. We could just start with us for now, Kevin tells Latunsky. But Latunsky seems focused on creating this fantasy. After a two-hour lull in the conversation because Kevin was doing something with a friend, Latunsky says, you have fun with your friends and enjoy the holidays, but Kevin isn't ready to let it go. Oh, I'm done, and I'm free for the rest of the night if you are, he says. Latunsky talks about going to his gym in Flint and says he'll be free later in the evening. The conversation reverts to sex. I have a man who wants to rape a boy, but he doesn't want to be accused of rape and have it affect his business, Latunsky says. Well, I have a rape fantasy, honestly. I didn't want to say it at first, but I do, Kevin said. In order to make the rape fantasy come true, Latunsky tells Kevin he'll have to be more scared than he's ever been. You don't have any medical conditions that would make this dangerous, do you? No, Kevin replies. They discuss whether to use leather or steel shackles. Kevin prefers leather. But, 
Latunsky says, there's a certain psychological allure to being delivered in shackles if they fit right. The weight of them leaves a psychological imprint that says, no escape. Latunsky tells Kevin he'll need to evoke a fight-or-flight response in order for the fantasy to work. Kevin agrees. Right, he says. I need to be basically helpless so I feel terrified. Latunsky tells Kevin he must encounter the unexpected, and at 10.40 p.m., they settle on plans to meet the following day, December 24th, after 3 p.m. The following afternoon, Kevin lets Latunsky know he's out of work, and they again begin planning the meeting. Kevin asks how Latunsky plans to make this encounter anonymous. I have a blindfold for you, and I will transport you to the place where the men will be, where the men will be making sure they do not know where you came from, and you will not know where they came from. You will not be able to remove the blindfold. Latunsky says he's arranging for Kevin to have sex with five men, and then he will return him to his vehicle. They settle on a meeting spot. Kevin will park his car in front of a family dollar in a strip mall on Miller Road in Clayton Township. And then Kevin texts something that became a focus for the prosecution of Latunsky. Here's Shiawassee County Circuit Court Judge Matthew J. Stewart, who presided over the case. Defendant began exchanging messages with the victim on December 23rd of the year 2019. That exchange began around 1.30 p.m. that day. They meet plans to meet the next afternoon around 3 p.m. on December 24th of the year 2019. The defendant and Kevin finalized their plans to meet. To the court's mind, the most important text in that exchange is one that Kevin sent at 5.05 p.m. on that day. Quote, now just one question. You are going to keep me safe, right? End quote. To the court's mind, that statement is the single best indicator of Kevin's state of mind. Whatever encounter Kevin intended to have, he wanted to be kept safe. In their text messages, Kevin lets Latunsky know he's showering and getting ready for the meetup. Just prior, Kevin was doing his mother and sister's hair at Uniquely You Salon, where Kevin was recently hired. He planned to see his family again for Christmas breakfast at 9 a.m. What he didn't know was that Mark Latunsky was making other plans. At 7.30 a.m. that morning, Kevin began the first of more than 50 internet searches relating to naps. Those searches continued throughout the morning. At 14.22 or 2.22 p.m., defendant purchased a knife at Walmart. Just two hours later, defendant and Kevin finalized their plans to meet. According to the text messages, Kevin lets Latunsky know he'll be driving a 2007 Saturn Aura. At 5.27 p.m. on Christmas Eve 2019, Latunsky writes, I just turned in and I am in front of the family dollar. Kevin's last message at 5.28 p.m. reads, Which car? The last time Kevin's phone pinged, according to police, was about 6.11 p.m. in the area of the family dollar. Kevin's roommate and friend Michelle Myers told police she last saw Kevin at 5.22 p.m. when he said he was leaving to meet the man he'd made plans with on Grinder. Kevin last texted to Myers at 6.11 p.m., According to the police report, Kevin wrote, Okay, well, I'm going to be out for a while, actually. This is going to be fun. He's inviting more men. Mary Dickmas. Not sure when I'll be back. Probably will be out late. So if mom calls you, I'm sleeping. Ha <laughs> ha.
Kevin never made it home on December 24th, 2019, and he didn't show up at his parents' house the following morning for Christmas breakfast. Kevin's parents and his roommate were immediately concerned and began to search. By 4.50 p.m. on Christmas Day, a missing person report had been filed. Kevin's parents immediately suspected that his casual sexual encounters might have played a role in his disappearance. According to the police report, quote, they advise that Kevin is gay and that he has been meeting other males on different websites. They stated that he met an unknown male on the website Grinder and was to meet up with the subject, unquote. Through their own search, Kevin's parents located their son's car parked outside the family dollar about 5.30 p.m. on Christmas. It was locked. They got a spare set of keys from home, and what they found inside alarmed them even more. Police came to the family dollar the following day, on December 26th, and found Kevin's clothes, a black hoodie, pink shirt, gray pants, and sandals, along with his powered-off cell phone, IDs, credit cards, and $80 in cash, all packed into a grocery bag placed in the back seat of the car. There was a key ring, also, but the key to the car was missing. Family and friends put together a search party and began looking for Kevin on December 27th. Later that day, state police forensic specialists were able to extract Kevin's grinder communications from his phone. Meanwhile, Kevin's friend and roommate, Michelle Myers, received a tip of her own. I have an idea, the tipster told Myers via text. There's a guy routinely on this app. He keeps having guys escape from his basement. The cops keep not pressing charges because the guys who escaped admit they went in consensually. Myers asked who this person was, and the tipster sent a profile image for Lucas Olikos Latunsky. Police were then able to use this information, paired with Kevin's grinder messages, to identify Mark Latunsky as a suspect. Four state troopers and two Clayton Township police officers responded to Latunsky's address. Two officers went to the rear, Clayton Township police officer Richard Lee and state police trooper Robert Viviano went to the front door. Viviano had been to Latunsky's home before, on November 25th, during the second incident when a man named Adam reported escaping from the house after being restrained in the basement. According to the Clayton Township Police Report, Latunsky answered the door wearing only a leather kilt and carrying a small brown dog. This is the testimony of Trooper Viviano. I asked Mr. Latunsky how he was doing and uh, asked him what he was doing and then I kind of got him to there as he had dirt here looking for person from Clayton Township, Kevin Bacon. Um, I asked Mr. Rotunsky if he knew him. Um, Mr. Rotunsky said he did not. I believe I asked uh, kind of like what he was doing or what he was up to tonight. And he said just hanging out. And then I asked uh, Mr. Rotunsky um, if he could come in and check his residence for Mr. Bacon. And what was his response when you asked to search? Uh, he said, sure, come on. Trooper Viviano and the Clayton Township police officer searched the home while other police talked to Latunsky. They entered the basement. On first inspection, it looked like an average basement. There were shelves containing household products like paint cans and stain. But at the end of the room was a door that caught the trooper's eye. Basically, as soon as you walk down the basement stairs, you're basically inside of a storage hallway. Um, with, I believe, a door to your left and another door to your right. And then once you kind of go through that main hallway, you kind of came to a, another wall. Well, on that wall was a hanging, like, decorative barn door, um, brown in color. And behind that was 
sat up from the floor and uh, looked out of place. Upon closer inspection, the trooper realized it wasn't a wall, it was a door. I pushed on the door a little bit and it gave way, and then I pushed on it again and kind of swung over and popped it. Um, as soon as I opened the door, I noticed it was lit. There was a cinder block wall directly on the other side of the room, and then I noticed a, what I thought at the time, Second Clayton Township officer, Richard Lee, who was present during the discovery of Kevin's body, did not testify in court, but M. Live obtained the police report he wrote. He said, I pushed on the closed wooden door and it did not move. I pushed harder and it began to open. Trooper Viviano made his way into the basement and I advised him that I was going to shove the door open. Trooper Viviano provided me with cover as I pushed the door. The door opened to the left, and I observed that it led to a cinder block room appearing to be approximately five feet deep. There was a light on in the room, and I observed a small wooden frame on the floor with a toilet seat attached to it. I also observed two other black items on the wall. One appeared to be a blindfold. Trooper Viviana was standing to my right and leaned in and looked into the right side of the room. He immediately took a step back and stated, He's in there dead. I looked into the room to the right, and observed the room appeared to be approximately 12 feet long and had a wooden floor stained brown color, similar to a deck. At the far end of the room, I observed a white male suspended from the ceiling by his ankles. The male was completely nude. The male was facing north and his head was resting on the floor of the room, which in the area was now sand. The male's hands were laying out in front of him with the palms facing upwards. I observed colorful tattooing on the male's left arm and the male had purple hair. The male was motionless, not breathing, and appeared deceased. At this point, I believe the male to be Kevin Bacon. next time on Michigan Crime Stories in Part 2. Until then, you can find the latest news from across Michigan at MLive.com. 
If you value the work of journalists like Gus, consider becoming an MLive subscriber. If you haven't yet, you can subscribe to Michigan Crime Stories wherever you find podcasts to be informed when we release new episodes. Thanks for listening.